Right now, researchers are trying to figure out why the life expectancy in the United States has dropped. And at first, hearing that, you might think, well, you know, COVID over these last few years. But no, it actually began in 2015. It was actually the first time life expectancy had dropped in the U.S. for the first time in decades. And they were hoping it was just a fluke, a blip on the radar. But when it dropped again in 2016, and then it dropped again in 2017, the alarm bells started to go off. We've got a problem. The last time American life expectancy dropped for three consecutive years was from 1916 to 1918. A hundred years ago, which was due to World War I and a massive flu epidemic that coincided with one another. That's saying a lot, considering the fact that the Great Depression, two great recessions, and six wars are sandwiched within that time. And so now they're asking, why is this happening? What's causing all of this? And researchers have essentially boiled it down to four main factors for why life expectancy is decreasing in the United States. Opioids, liver disease, overdoses, and suicides. Deaths from these four causes have skyrocketed. Why? Researchers are now calling them deaths of despair. Despair has become a new pandemic in its own right. These deaths are the result of what happens when people feel like they have nowhere to go. They have no, nothing to turn to. And the hopeless desperation they feel to try and cope with the emptiness and the pain. One major factor is sociological. We're experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. In 1990, the average American male had four friends. Now he has one. One third of Americans confess they're lonely and no one really knows them. And the loneliest generation of all is actually Generation Z. That was born after 1995. And 61% of our kids say they're lonely. And now 59% of babies born to women under the age of 30 have no meaningful relationship with their father. 59%. That's heartbreaking. Another factor is economic despair. The average American household has $165,000 of debt. College now requires that you pay to get a degree that gets you a job that won't pay you enough to pay off the debt it took to get the job in the first place. In the last two years, credit card debt for the average household has increased 15%, and the average home has $17,000 of credit card debt. Inflation stretches families to 63% of Americans today are now living paycheck to paycheck, regardless of their level of income. The average day at a job is now 4.2 years, and unemployment is as unpredictable as ever. 
Automation is happening at such a rapid rate that by 2035, it's predicted that machines will take over 80 million jobs in the United States alone. We're seeing rampant inflation, the great resignation, pensions lost, retirements crumble, and an economic future that, quite frankly, is impossible to plan for. Oh, and there's AI technology, too now exploding onto the scene and advancing at a rate that, quite frankly, is scary. ChatGPT is a new AI chatbot that just recently passed the bar exam and the exams from the Wharton School of Business all in a single week. And those who study AI have said, do not think that you're safe just because you have a college education. And so here we are in 2023, and for all of our technological advancement, why is it that our despair has only increased with it? It's just another reminder that we simply cannot engineer our own happiness and satisfaction. And all of that's just what's happening in the world around you. And it doesn't even touch on what's going on in your home. Or in your heart? Are you feeling some despair this morning? Overwhelmed by what life has thrown at you? And under-resourced to handle it? And sure, maybe you don't feel despair of life itself as a whole. But you feel despair in a certain area of life that seasons the rest of your life. We want to be a church that talks about despair. We need to be a church that talks about despair and doesn't avoid it. Because if we did, then it just means that eventually you're going to have to walk in here and pretend. You have to walk in here and pretend like everything is okay. Nothing to see here. I've got everything under control. And yet sooner or later, despair is the drink that this world will serve you. Because we want to be a church that talks about it. Because it's psalms like Psalm 42 that remind us that God wants to talk about it. Because when you look at the psalms, literally, despair is virtually on every single page. Why? Because you live in a broken world. The fall really happened. It is prone to death and decay. In this world, you can't control it. And things fall apart. And the Psalms remind us of that. And I think one of the reasons we feel despair as Christians is because we don't think that we should feel despair in the first place. We think that if we had just you know, done things differently, or made a better decision, or if I'd got certain things together and tried harder, then I, I wouldn't feel this way. If I just had more faith if I was just more spiritually mature, then I wouldn't be in this position. So we don't give ourselves permission to feel despair, which then means that we can't confess our despair to others for fear of rejection or judgment or embarrassment, and then despair becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where in the end, you're all alone and hopelessness abounds. I say all of that to try and communicate to you that it is okay to feel despair. It's okay to feel desperate. It's okay to feel like you are at the end of your rope. 
God isn't mad at you. He's not punishing you. He's not abandoned you. Because if that's what that means, then why does God give us all of these psalms that are written in the ink of despair? Think of the despair we see in the stories of Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets. The psalms give you permission to feel that despair because your despair is precious to God. You have to remember that the Psalms are the soundtrack of Israel. They guided and directed their worship as a people. And this Psalm should challenge us to recognize that despair is written into the liturgy of God's people. It's because despair is an opportunity for worship. And if it's an opportunity for worship, then despair is an opportunity to encounter God and to see his face. That's the hope of the psalmist in his despair, and that's the hope that's put before you in yours. But it's hard. It's a hard road to walk, to worship in despair. But the psalmist teaches us how to do it. He teaches us how to put one foot in front of the other. So let's walk with him. The psalmist says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. He's experiencing a loss of appetite, a loss of sleep. He can't eat because of that pit in his stomach. He can't sleep because his mind won't turn off. It's the restless life produced by a restless heart. Verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. The psalmist is remembering those better days when life was full of joy and expectation, when his spiritual life felt vibrant and alive, but now life has taken those unexpected turns and all he has left are memories with the despair of thinking that he will ever experience them again. Verse 6, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. So in the previous verses, he's remembering those better days, but where did they happen? They happened in Jerusalem at the house of God, but now he's experienced a dislocation. He's not in Jerusalem. He's far to the north in the mountains of Hermon. The place he's in doesn't feel like home, and home is far away. Verses 9 and 10, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of of the enemy? As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. So his enemies mock and degrade him, and he feels wounded and dehumanized. Sure, maybe nobody's after your life, but it's the despair that happens when the actions and the intentions of others make you feel so small, insignificant, and forgettable. That's the psalmist's despair. Now what's yours? Maybe you're exhausted by your restless heart and that runaway mind that won't let you sleep. Or you too remember better days that feel lost. Maybe just the simplicity of when your job seemed like such a great opportunity at first, but now you feel trapped. Trapped. 
or when you had community with others that's now been broken. You remember the hopes you had for your marriage, but love has grown cold and you just don't know what to do. Or you never expected parenting to be this hard. And you remember when your kids were little and life just seemed so much simpler back then and how you didn't appreciate it. Maybe you feel dislocated. You're new to the Rockwall area, but this place doesn't feel like home. And even though you're not on the run for your life, you still feel the wounds of betrayal or being taken advantage of and treated like you're just not worth very much. Whatever it is, we have to recognize the despair because we have to recognize what despair does. Despair is a powerful way of narrowing your gaze and focusing all of your attention on whatever difficult circumstances are troubling you. We can't stop thinking about it. It gnaws at us. All we want is for it to be fixed and to be taken away and to feel rest. But notice what's not in this psalm. The psalmist never asks for his circumstances to change or to be taken away. We just read, we just read it. Yes, he's completely honest about his circumstances. He's completely honest about his situation. He expresses his vexation and the challenges that he's facing. He's not Pollyanna and pretends like nothing is wrong and that he's just going to trust God and let go and let God. No, he's a realist. He's honest about what he's facing. But he also expresses a far deeper desire than God just swooping in and fixing his situation how he wants. And friends, that is the first challenge to you in your despair. Quite frankly, one of the hardest steps to take. Are you willing to want something more than for your situation to be fixed? Are you willing to want something more than for your circumstances to change? The psalmist wants something more than that in his despair. What's he really after? We see it in verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and see the face of God? He's completely aware of his circumstances and his hardships, but do you notice how he doesn't view those circumstances as the real source of his despair? The real source of his despair is how his circumstances make him feel distant and disconnected from his God. They cloud his face. They blind him from being able to see his presence. They weigh down his hands and they make it a struggle to lift them to him in praise. They make his heart feel heavy and slow and sluggish and dull. So he doesn't just fixate on his circumstances and just pray for them to be fixed because it's not his greatest desire. His greatest desire is closeness and intimacy with God in those circumstances. 
when shall I see his face again? The psalmist hasn't allowed his circumstances to produce a despair that blinds him to what he truly needs and desires. He hasn't allowed his hardships to distract him from what will truly bring rest to his heart and be water to his soul. He knows that at the very core of his being, he thirsts for God, for the living God, and he fights to remember that. And it will always be a fight to remember that. Because to ignore your thirst for God is a dangerous, dangerous thing. In 2006, David Buscow was a a healthy 29-year-old male that signed up to participate in an outdoor survival program in Utah that was supposed to last for 28 days. And this program would take people through an extreme training regimen. And the regimen began by making the participants experience the effects of dehydration. So they would take them on a two-day hike at the very beginning where they weren't given any water. And then at the end of that hike, there was a cave with a natural spring in it where they could finally take a drink and have their fill. But at the beginning of the second day, David was in bad shape. He was in incredible pain. But he decided to continue on, but as the day progressed, his condition only got worse as the effects of dehydration continued to take their toll. And they kept losing track of David because he kept wandering off and they'd have to go find him. And the reason is because when someone experiences prolonged dehydration, the most dangerous effect is that the person stops being aware of their thirst in the first place. And they stop seeking water. And instead, they begin to hallucinate. And on one occasion, when they finally found David, he was having a conversation with a tree, sitting in the hot desert sun. And in the end, David got within 100 yards of the pool of water before the effects of dehydration finally took their toll, and he died. Now, if this is the effect of physical thirst on the mind and on the body, then what do you think happens to you when you experience a deep thirst of the soul? What happens when we forget what we're really thirsty for? We wander off. We lose our way. We hallucinate about what will truly satisfy us. And the psalmist says that he lives in a world that taunts him in his despair. A world that says, where's your God? Where's he at in all of your despair? And you live in a world that's no different You don't live in a world that encourages you to draw near and to drink deeply of God in your despair. No. It says, come this way. Come this way instead and try this. Come and scroll through what your kitchen could look like. Wouldn't it be so satisfying? Come and see what you could be driving. Come and see what you could have in your fantasies. 
Come and see what you could buy. Come and see the life that you could, that you could have. See the life that could be yours. We're offered hallucinations that say, come and drink deeply, that cause us to forget the deepest thirst within us. And the only place that we will find satisfaction for it. You know, take Netflix, for instance. In 2018 alone, Netflix spent $12.7 billion on producing original content. That $12.7 billion produced over 1,500 hours of television, which would take you an entire year to watch all of it if you spent four hours a day doing so. So in short, they want all of your free time. Why? Because they know how thirsty we are. And they're eager to satisfy it. They see the user data. They see how you you start a show. We watch a couple of episodes, and then if we're not hooked, we start to watch another show. It's because we're not really looking for a show. What we're looking for is an addiction. We want to fix. They know that binge-watching a television show can actually produce the same levels of dopamine as, a hero, as heroin. That's why people get depressed when they finish a show. We live in a world that offers you all sorts of hallucinations that would distract you from your real thirst, which is why last year in 2022, Netflix spent $18 billion again to satisfy it. And instead, the psalmist invites you down a different road. It's one that turns you away from those hallucinations and it sets you back on course to that cave where there is living water in it. He draws you back on a road that will lead you to encounter the face of God. And he teaches you how to put one foot in front of the other. And the first thing is in verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. We just kind of gloss over that as just kind of what poets do, right? They write flowery stuff like that. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, or it's the first step. Have you taken the time to pour out your soul to God? Have you emptied your heart before him? Have you run to the end of your vocabulary on your knees before him? It should tell us something, that in the midst of the psalmist's despair, we have this poem to actually read about it. It's because he took time to stop and pour out his soul before God. He chose to stop, to not be distracted, and to just sit in it all with God. And isn't that one of the hardest things to do? When we feel that hopelessness and despair, it's so hard to just sit still. We feel restless and anxious. We can't stop moving. We have to keep going. We have to find a distraction. And I think this is so true of so many of us. You are not going to find rest at the pace you are living. 
You're not going to find rest at the pace that you are living. Part of the problem is that you want God to speed up, but God wants you to slow down. Give up an episode at night. Lay aside your phone. Stop scrolling into a hallucinating oblivion and just be still before him. And pour out your soul to him. Tell him what vexes you and crushes you down. Just like the psalmist. Why? Because that's how you stop pretending. That's how you stop pretending everything's fine. You got this. You'll be okay. Bootstrap time. No big deal. It's how you wake up and realize you're dust. You're helpless. You're weak. You're needy. And it's where you finally start to recognize that deeper thirst that's within you. That you've been ignoring. And thinking that you could satisfy it with other things. It's how you are awakened to the real thirst within you for God. But secondly, the psalmist teaches you how to talk to yourself. He says in verses 5 and 11, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In despair, what's easy is listening to yourself. We wallow. We air out our grievances and our frustrations in our mind. We rehearse them. And we fixate on them. And we focus on everything that we wish was different. And we stop there. We don't go any further. But the psalmist teaches us to speak to ourselves. And speaking to yourself is something altogether different than listening to yourself. The psalmist recounts his troubles and he lays them before God, but his focus does not resolve on those troubles. He also recounts the promises of God to him and he remembers who his God is. He says in verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He says it even when he doesn't feel it. It's in this moment where he slows down. He's saying, even though I do not feel it, even though I don't see it, and even though my circumstances make it feel so untrue, I will remember that you are with me, and I know that you love me. Therefore, O oh my soul, hope in God. He reminds himself that his hope is not in these circumstances being removed. His hope is that he will again praise the Lord his God. And his thirst will be satisfied in him. He teaches us how to have the willingness to wait upon the Lord in your despair. The hard thing is, is it doesn't have a, a buy it now option attached to it where we just sit down once and then it's all gone. I wish it were the case. It's not. It certainly hasn't been in my life. But there's something about all of those moments and those dark nights of the soul where you're willing to stop 
and to sit, to seek his face, to fight against all the distractions, and you choose to do it. And it's so hard because all of that despair just wells up within you and it feels so overwhelming and you're like, why do I want to sit down when this is exactly why I distract myself so I don't feel this way? And yet, the way that the Lord works so slowly when he slows us down is that all of that pain, he will turn into something precious. But you got to be willing to wait for him. And he's waiting for you. It's a hard road to walk. Yet it's one that Jesus walked himself. In Gethsemane, Jesus felt the weight of a despair that, friends, you and I could never comprehend. He gives voice to his vexation. He lays his hardships before the Father. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? I want out. But he was not distracted in his despair. He said, but if not, your will be done. I desire you more than a life that's free of the cross. And the next morning, Mark tells us in chapter 15 that as Jesus was carrying his cross to to Golgotha on the Via Della Rosa, he was offered something to drink. He was offered wine mixed with myrrh. It's a drink that was given to ease the pain of crucifixion. Jesus was offered a sedative. He was offered a drug. He was offered a hallucination. But Jesus wouldn't drink it, and he refused. Instead, he laid down on the cross. But he did not die a death of despair. It was a death of hope. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I will wait upon you even in death. And three days later, his soul was satisfied. But here's the rub. Jesus didn't die so that you would never feel despair. He didn't die to remove your circumstances. He died so that your soul may be satisfied in them. He's the one who is with you. He's the one who waits for you. He's the one that knows the thirst that is so deep in your soul. And he withheld nothing and he invested far more to satisfy it than $18 billion. So in your despair, will you wait for him in hope? the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your tender mercies are new every morning. And in seasons of despair, it does not feel that way every morning. It can be so hard to get up and get out of bed and face another day with the challenges that we face. The hardships that are before us and another day of just feeling the sluggish weight of sorrow and pain and hopelessness. We confess that we're dust. We confess our frailty. We confess our arrogance that we can handle life on our own. And we confess our need of you.
that underneath all of the difficult circumstances that we face and some that are so real to others in this room right now, we confess that in the midst of it, you are our greatest desire, even when we don't feel it. You are the, th- the satisfying, life-giving water for our soul, even when we forget it. So would you remind us of it this morning? Remind us that you draw near to us in our despair. You gave us the Psalms to feel the permission to feel it, and so we ask that we stop beating ourselves up and we would just simply bring it before you. And we ask that we would bring it to this table. We might lay it down as we pick up your body and your blood and we feast upon you. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.